Hello, and welcome to a special episode of The Beeline, the official podcast of the West Virginia National Guard. I'm Master Sergeant DeWan Haley, a public affairs specialist with the 133rd Lift Wing. And in light of recent events that are going on in the country, with the videos of police killings and nationwide protests, we thought it would be a great time to open dialogue into race as it pertains to the military. With me today are individuals from various backgrounds and ex life experiences. So for voice recognition, I'll allow each individual to introduce themselves and their job title. Starting with you, sir. Brigadier General Christopher Walker. I'm the Assistant Adjutant General of Air and also the Commander of the West Virginia Air National Guard. Good afternoon. Colonel David Cochran. I'm West Virginia Air National Guard, Director of Operations. Good afternoon. This is Wayne Harrison, the 137th Elephant Wing, Wing Exec. Good afternoon. I'm Chief Master Sergeant Kevin Williams, Command Chief, 130th Airlift Wing. Good afternoon. I'm Tech Sergeant Derek Tolliver, 130th Airlift Wing. I'm a finance technician with 10 years military police experience. And good afternoon. I'm Sergeant Jason G. Lee, West Virginia Army National Guard, Joint Forces Headquarters, current post-deployment health reassessment manager for the state of West Virginia. Thank you all for being on the show. Um, there's been many videos out there that, um, you know, that we all seen. So one thing I want to do is I want to get you all's view on first, if you've seen the videos or if you have seen the videos, what were your initial thoughts? I know with me personally, the last video that I saw was um, the one of Ahmaud Arbery. And it was one of those videos that it just it I wasn't good for a couple of days to be honest and I just told myself that I could not watch those videos ever again um, so General Walker let's ask you first um, so some of these videos yeah they, they are hard to watch because we're watching uh, our fellow humans uh, be killed and it's never good to watch, it's, it's, you know, within the black community, uh, they really, we take it a little bit more to heart because we, we realize, holy smokes, uh, this could happen to us. But I also remember that throughout my life, where I, where I grew up, I, I had friends getting killed and stabbed and shot as well, and... It wasn't by a white person. <laughs> and so I, I have to also look at those as well. Uh, the, these videos that we see, we don't normally get to see people getting killed for real. We see it in the movies, and we don't really, uh, and, and it doesn't affect us as much. But when we see it happening for real, and even those of us who have seen people die in wartime, it, it does affect us a lot. And so... Uh, I, I uh, so I, I I was able to step back a little bit and go okay yes that was that's foul what happened to to these individuals in the, in this video and the fact that we're seeing it uh, happen in real time or, or in this video that that hits us all and what but here's the thing what I was the the good or the silver lining if if I could call it that that came out of this is. All of America thought it was foul. It wasn't like uh, uh, all the white people said, oh, that's no big deal. No, everybody thought it was foul. So, so we got to take heart in that, to, know, to, to remind ourselves that there is good in America. And, and there are knuckleheads and, and bad people in America, but most of America is good. And so we can't let it turn us against each other. Yes, sir. Yeah, awesome. I kind of kin it to um, Bloody Sunday. You know, people were talking, you know, like that stuff didn't happen until they actually saw it. And then when they actually saw people, you know, being bit by police police dogs and things like that, that just, it was like the thing that started. You the know. Civil rights movement. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yes. It really, like, it spearheaded, you know, you get into the um, Voting Rights and the Civil Rights Act, yes. things like that. Sir, um, 
Colonel Cochran. Okay, yeah, Colonel Cochran. So uh, I think my first impression, I haven't watched the full-length videos. So I've only seen what the, uh, what the mass media kind of puts out. And I think I've done that intentionally, too, just because, you know, the graphic nature of the full-length videos, from my understanding, too, is something that I really, you know, I don't need to see it. I can, exactly. I can imagine that. But uh, my first uh, reaction, and there have been quite a few videos of late, but uh, even if you take the George Floyd video, you know, and I'll just concentrate on that one. So I think my first reaction was just sadness, right? It was actually pretty sad to kind of see um, that loss of life. And then I think uh, ultimately, even before the end of the episode, I think I quickly became outraged because of the, uh, the circumstances that allowed that life to be lost. You know, so that was kind of my reaction to, uh, to the videos. So, uh, Major Harrison, uh, get your thoughts on it. Yes, well, I, I see the videos uh, quite so often, and it, sh- it shouldn't be occurring. You know, um, seeing the last video with Mr. Floyd, George Floyd, uh, losing his life in front of everybody, and, and I think that's what's making the changes right now with, with the laws and policy, hopefully. Um, like, uh, it's very depressing and very disheartening, you know. Um, and to think that could be me, somebody else that may not look like me, and especially you have children, you know, um, and to see a grown man cry for his mama that's deceased, that was, that really got me. And sometimes I try to not be, try to be hard, but um, uh, to have disregard for human life, um, no matter who they are, yeah. it, it's extremely disheartening. So uh, it did have a tremendous effect on me. But even though that occurred, I don't reflect with everybody being a bad individual for a few bad apples. Um, but it just seemed like those few bad apples got way more say so. But like, see now things like things are changing. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, I know that's one thing with the um, George Floyd video. Like I said, I haven't watched that video, but you know, when you're in social media, sometimes you just come across a picture or something like that. And whenever I seem to come across that picture, it is just so hard for me to look down at his eyes because you could just see like the hopelessness in his eyes that he knew that like this was it you know he did all that he could for eight minutes and 46 seconds i mean that pressure was applied to him and i don't know that's that's something that i'll always remember especially with those pictures is his eyes and how i just can't look at him like it's almost impossible for me to look at him so um, chief williams um your thoughts yes i'm saddened i'm saddened for on a lot of fronts i'm saddened uh, when one human being doesn't value the life of another Uh, i'm saddened um, by the stigma and the the negative image that it puts on a lot of good police officers many of whom are black Um, i'm saddened um, by the division and the hate that grows within the country that i swore to defend and protect um. Yeah, that's about as well as I can define it. It's it's a sad, sad thing to have to watch. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, Sergeant Tolliver, get your. With somebody uh, with ten years military police experience, I used to watch as many videos as I could uh, to try to break it down, to try to make sense out of it. Um. I had to stop. It became overwhelming to see video after video after video and uh, then to see individuals who uh, were friends of mine the day before uh, support acts that I don't condone. I tend to hold police officers to a higher standard. You know, when a, a criminal kills a criminal, that's that's what you expect to happen. Um, and there's a due process and that criminal typically winds up serving some time in prison. But when a police officer who is uh, sworn in to protect us kills an unarmed individual, I have a deep personal issue with that. Um, and then to see the due process fail, it, it, it's heartbreaking. And, and that's when the outrage kicks in for me is when you see the due process fail, the, the foundation of why we serve and what we serve for, when you see it fail, that's where the outrage comes in for me. Um, Sergeant Lee. Well, I say 
Well, first of all, I have not. I can't bring myself to watch the full George Floyd video like you, Mass Sergeant. But I will say, shock was my first emotion, and I said this to my wife a few weeks ago. I said it's almost like reopening Emmett Till's casket. Now that's a, a name from the past. Emmett Till, of course, the 14-year-old boy who was lynched in Mississippi, I believe, sometime in 1955, and his mother chose to hold an open casket funeral. And I think Jet Magazine took the picture of the open casket and published it, and it mm-hmm. just like was like, whoa, shocking to America. And some people consider that the true kickoff of the civil rights movement. Well, I feel like Mr. Floyd's death on this video, this eight that 8 minutes 46 seconds, is like reopening that casket all over again for a new generation that has really, really taken to the streets, and they've got a built-up fire. I, I can't quite explain their fire, but they are fired up, and I think that's what I just really thought. It was just shocking to, to see it all. I think, too, that's, um, that's one thing that I'm very, very encouraged about with this generation is that they see it, and they, they're outraged, and it's a righteous outrage. And I think, to me, that just gives me so much hope that this stuff like this will be less and less of the norm because of the outrage of not just um, black people, but, I mean, white people, Hispanics, Asians. Like, I mean, you saw... America. Yeah, exactly. Not even just America, like the whole world. I mean, you had different countries, you know, protesting that. And um, I think that's something that is very, very um, hopeful for not just America, but for the world. Um, my next question is, um, and I'll ask you, General Walker, uh, what's your experience dealing with racial issues in the military? Okay, so let me start from when I came into the military from New York City. I, uh, I Growing up in the inner city in New York, there was a certain mentality that, okay, I'm from New York, so I know everything. And, and anybody not from New York don't know nothing. And, and anybody with a southern accent was, was supposed to be stupid. Anybody from the country was supposed to be stupid. And then I went to Colorado Springs to the Air Force Academy. And I, I, all, of that, all of that indoctrination I had growing up turned out to be total BS. And that is one thing. So I, that's the first thing I want to say. The military enabled me to see people as people. Because when I first got there to the academy, I I tended to only hang with people from New York and black people from New York. Uh, But then basic training and and other other activities, sort of what I call the crucible of fire, made me realize, holy holy smokes, I need this person's help, I need this person's help, and we all needed each other's help in order to, to cooperate and graduate. And that's when I started. All of the all of the, the notions that I had were evaporated by being in the military. If I'd stayed in New York City, my perceptions would have. I would be a much different person today. I, I still have friends who stayed there in New York City and only went to uh, college in the city and never been outside the city. And when you, one talks about provincial attitudes, they still think the same way as they did. 30-something years ago. And being in the military enabled me not only to meet other Americans from all sorts of different cultures, it enabled me to open my eyes that, hey, all, all black folks don't think the same either. And, yeah. and we're not supposed to be monolithic mm-hmm. uh, in our thoughts. And, and uh, also different cultures that I'd only learned about through either movies or just BS that I was told totally changed. When I went to live in Japan, I said, oh, this is, this is how Japanese people are. It's not like the movies. Or when I had opportunity with Colonel Cochran to spend a lot of time in Kenya and, and other parts of Africa, I said, wait a minute, hold up. All this stuff that I had been seeing in the movies, this is, this is utter bunk. But, I got, but the military enabled me to learn all these things. Mm-hmm. Now... Now, in your question, if you're asking about uh, uh, racial incidents throughout the military, quite honestly, no. Uh, there's there's always there's always a holes everywhere. 
whether they are uh, whether they are a different race or whether they're or they're black. I've and I've encountered that all, but for the most part, I've encountered people who are are aggressively seeking the betterment of America and and all willing to have each other's backs. All right, Colonel Cochran again. So I guess the question was, uh, you know, racial uh, experiences in the military. So I went to Air Force Academy just like General Walker, and I grew up in a small town in central Virginia. I had the benefit of growing up a little bit outside of Atlantic City too, so some of the same type of, uh, you know, city-type stuff. Atlantic City was kind of rough back in those days too. So I kind of had a little bit of a diversity in my upbringing where I saw an urban environment and uh, basically a really rural environment too. So uh, coming into the military, you know, my expectations were very broad, always very inclusive uh, mindset that I've grown up with, but also in my rural community experience in high school too, uh, the county adjacent to us, I'll just give you guys a little bit of background. So I grew up in Cumberland County, Virginia, Prince Edward County, you can Google that one, was the adjacent county. I have some older sisters, they went to segregated school, so they weren't allowed to go to school uh, with white students. But uh, out of that, you know, uh, integration, the county, the county next to ours chose to close their schools, and they, uh, they established a private school system. And I want to say that school system stayed closed for probably five years in the 60s. So, uh, and and we're, we're right there together. So that was kind of the environment, the rural environment that I kind of grew up with. There was a little bit of division. And uh, I want to say the first black student that got into that private school that was established in the 60s happened after I graduated from high school. It was like 1986. Wow. You know, so, you know, so that, that perspective too. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of kind of a, a racial uh, uh, acknowledgement in my community. I grew up in, there was a lot of, not necessarily hardcore divisions, but a little bit of separate separateness that happened. But anyway, so within the military, my experience started, started Air Force Academy too, but I think all groups kind of like to assimilate together. So I remember getting to the academy, and some of my best buddies at, acad at the academy are Asian Americans. You know, obviously uh, my, my close white friends, which is the majority of students at the Air Force Academy, but the minority of, of being black at the Air Force Academy, we did choose to kind of have some uh, cohesiveness, and I joined the gospel choir. You know, wasn't a, I was not a, you know, I grew up in the church and I did that. Me uh, too. For quite, yeah. <laughs> quite, for quite a few years. But, you know, uh, but I never sang in the choir, but I did. I joined the gospel choir. Gospel choirs mostly, you know. And the Af Way of Life Committee? Af African Americans, you know, <laughs> because, you know, you kind of do. You kind of migrate towards something that you're familiar with and, and you have common cultural experiences. So that does happen. So my experience with race in the military, I don't have any horrible stories. Uh, personally, I've always tried to, uh, uh, throughout my career, even as I've gained leadership positions, to make sure that I uh, led by example, like we all try to do. And I try and always um, preach uh, to uh, airmen, you know, soldiers, uh, our military members, the value of diversity and inclusion. And that can be, you know, whether it's ethnic diversity, whether it's uh, other cultural diversity, uh, gender diversity, idea diversity, economic diversity, everybody brings a little bit of their experience to the table. So I think uh, I've always tried to make sure that that was a part of our, our military uh, culture in addition to our core values. And um, the other thing I think that's really big about that is that you have to know that even within our military organization, even within the West Virginia National Guard, the West Virginia Air National Guard, we are not immune to, uh, to uh, unconscious bias or racial bias. We're not. So it, it, uh, it does exist. You know, I think we would be uh, naive to think that some of that did not exist when it, within our organization. But fortunately, I have not seen that as a problem within the organization. But I think the reason we do some of the training that we do when it comes to diversity and inclusion, unconscious bias, is because it does filter in, and you may not even be aware that you're having a bias until maybe you're in a conversation with some folks that are maybe a, think a little bit different than you do or that you're exposed to a little bit of training that kind of opens your uh, spectrum a little bit and your aperture to kind of understand, you know, really what's, what's formulating uh, your thought process and uh, what, makes, um, what makes each of us different and how we view everyone else through our own lens. And it's not necessarily a lens that, that's colored, filtered. It could, be, it could be anything from, like I said, an economic whether you grew up in a rural area, you grew up in an urban area, whether you're Asian, uh, you're non-white. So all those factors go in. I think we just need to be very cognizant of making sure that we don't tolerate 
any type of uh, discrimination, which we don't in our organization, and that we can make sure that we kind of in, in, uh, uh, incorporate that into our, our conversations, our training, and make sure ultimately that it's, it's the expectation for all our members that uh, we won't tolerate any type of uh, discrimination within our ranks. I think that's something that's very important that both of you all said is, um, especially coming into the military, is the diversity. You know, I grew up in Eastern Canal County, went to Riverside High School. I mean, it was out of 1,300 kids, there were maybe 60 that were minority. But when you go into the military, I mean, my first base was Alaska, and there was so much diversity just in, within my shop, and we became like family. You know, and that's one thing that I do believe that the military does provide that um, maybe the outside world, or if you don't really go to those different places, you know, you don't get exposed to that type of environment. Um, you notice uh, when people, when those of us are in the military, we don't say we work for the Army or work for the Air Force. We say we're in the Army or we're in the Air Force. Yeah. And there's a big difference. Uh, saying I work for... Uh, Bank of America. I, I work for for Lockheed, but you never say I'm in Lockheed. Mm -hmm. So that goes to show we're in a family. Yeah. And just uh, Colonel Cochran again, and just even on that diversity piece. So I think uh, uh, the U.S. military, you know, a recent history, equal opportunity employer, right? right. And uh, so we do have a lot of diversity. You hear a lot of young uh, airmen and soldiers talk about uh, that diversity and maybe, you know, coming from a, whether it be a small town or some other environment where they're exposed for the first time, almost like Sergeant Haley just said, too, to, uh, to a very diverse uh, environment. But what I have noticed, too, and uh, you probably see it as well, that even within that diversity of the organization, they're still separate. You still go, clicks. Yeah, you go to the DFAC, you know, in the Air Force example, you know, the Chow Hall, and uh, you take a look around and you will see – that, you know, that happens. It's mm -hmm. just, it's almost like the natural evolution that uh, even though there's a lot of diversity, it still can be uh, not necessarily all inclusive. And that's right. some of the pieces that we really need to still work on. What are different things that you think that we can do to work on those type of things? I think a part of it is just uh, making sure that we, uh, that we talk about it, almost like what we're doing right here. Right. So you got to have the conversations, you know, and you got to have, make sure that uh, even if you take a shop, like, I don't, uh, like the shop that you started out in Alaska, I would hope that you would have had a supervisor that uh, maybe was not afraid to have conversations with everybody and to kind of preach that. We have to have social events together where it's all inclusive and everybody gets to participate. Sometimes that's difficult in the guard because uh, especially in the guard of late where it's, uh, you know, you kind of in your UTA and everybody goes their separate ways even on a Saturday and we're not really doing some of the, the big social things where we get everybody together. So I think you have to incorporate some type of uh, – a process in your in your leadership style that makes those type of things happen so that you're not necessarily forcing it, but you're encouraging it and you're giving an opportunity for our members to get to know each other. That's good stuff. Uh, Major Harrison, what are your thoughts? Yes, uh, I have a, uh, like I said, I was raised in, raised in, uh, born and raised in Bronx, New York, mm -hmm. and with my grandparents, uh, my grandparents and I, um, my grandmother's an RN, my grandfather's a welder for Curtis, uh, for Curtis Rice. And, um, and for doing, uh, childcare, I had Italians that was like my sex, my surrogate parent. Mm -hmm. So I'm very raised in a diverse background. And I think it was done perfectly, uh, because of what my grandparents experienced. My grandmother graduated from Tuskegee University, you know, during the, before the civil rights movement, you know, uh, you know, what's going on down south in Birmingham, Alabama. Right. Uh, so uh, in Bronx, I was in the melting pot, Puerto Ricans, Jamaicans. So I didn't see that um, we was all together mm -hmm. until I moved. So my grandparents retired, and then we moved to Birmingham, Alabama. Because my grandma said, "Hey, she was a nurse in the New York system, so she said, hey, I want to move back down south, you know, be closer to home.' So we moved back down south. So I went to, so I went to an all-black high school, first time ever being in a hundred percent. Uh, black high school, and I'm kind of glad that occurred so I'd be able to learn, uh, you know, uh, my uh, the history, and you know, you can see the disparity in education compared to um, the outskirts, like Homewood High School in, in Birmingham, outside of Homewood. Homewood is like predominantly white, and you can tell the difference in, you know, education system. And if your parents were heavily involved, 
you would suffer. Like the one with the high school, I mean, so with 20 some students. When I graduated, we only had 81. So it tells you how the inner city, you know, kids are challenged. So, but after that, so I went ahead and joined the Navy. Once again, Navy, I wasn't spent, no racism, nothing like that. I mean, great mentorship. I had people, uh, people in leadership did not look like me. But even though they look like me, they still treat me like, I didn't see no difference mm-hmm. in how I was treated. So I like I said, I didn't see no racism. I was in Navy from 91 until like 1998. Not one time. I don't think I even experienced it indirectly. Um, I got the Navy in Meridian, Mississippi, and I joined the International Guard. Oh, man, you're talking about me like family. You said the International Guard is family? It is family. But, you know, you do have some occasions, some occurrences that occur. Mm-hmm. And I said, sometimes I'm not used to it because I said I would have never experienced before. But sometimes people make it straight blunt to you. Right. I could tell you one experience. I can't say uh, one experience that was told me of God by the officer. Um, I had a, I said, Mississippi, there's hardly no African-Americans in leadership roles as uh, we do now. But during the time when I was coming back in 2014, um, I had an HRO director from Mississippi say, hey, Wayne, I'm, I'm going to groom you to be the HR director. But first I want to go through the, I'm going to have you talk to the deputy director, the deputy HRO, groom me for his position. I, I was so ecstatic. I'm like, man, this, this colonel, 06, is taking interest in me. And not only that, the lieutenant colonel said, yes, I'm going to groom you. I said, oh, this is awesome. So you have all this conversation during lunchtime. He said, Wayne, hey, how would you like to one day be HO director? I can't promise you that because where I'm going, but I can set you up for the for the right position as a deputy HO. I said, that is awesome. So it was like me, a couple of other 06s, uh, and a lieutenant colonel at the time, and a, and a major. I said, that's great. So I said, hey, well, they don't only going to talk to you about it. So after that, we got through lunch. So we go a separate ways. I had to go back to another office with the Somebody who's over lunch with us, another 06 and another uh, lieutenant colonel. And the word was said to me, said, yeah, colonel really liked that boy right there. And then the other colonel said, yeah, that boy, his favorite. And I knew what he tried, I knew what he was saying. And I was taken aback by that. So no matter what position you may get, you know, where we may be, sometimes those racist attitudes come out and it just doesn't discourage you because you know you look at that 06 then you look at another lieutenant colonel and they're saying that to me you know that I treat seem like I treat people fairly and the way I fell where it's raised but still to this day I don't hold that against the whole race mm-hmm. I would never will because I did I would harbor a whole lot of resentment and the, that's just one example but I know that in leisure roles, there's not a lot of people that look like me, except why I see Colonel Walker is very encouraging. Colonel Cochran, oh, it's, it's amazing. There's not a lot of people that look like me in leisure roles to look for mentors. So, of course, I have to look for somebody that doesn't look like me, that's mostly white, to mentor me. And it's like I said, 99% have been positive. I didn't, matter of fact, I didn't have to even go to nobody that looked like me. They were putting on me to win, even while I was in the Navy. Even the National Guard, when I lost my job, which I controlled as an IT coordinator, first thing they said, hey, Wayne, come on. We're going to put you on temp tech orders, AGR orders. We've got you covered. But that's, it's a small, minute people who makes it bad for everybody. Not really bad for everybody. It just puts a bad mark, especially if it's not corrected. So those are the like, most discouraging things that ever happened to me as, as being an officer. But like I said, you know, overcome it. But once again, I do not make that those couple of situations mark a whole race. And that's why I'm trying to get out to as well. You know, sometimes you see bad things on the news about African Americans being arrested and they try to group the whole race as being just like with the news show. But that's not the case. You know, we all have families, we all want the exact same things everybody else do. So um just get to learn, um, just to take the chance out to learn the person don't look like you. Like Colonel Cochran said, go to lunch. You know, uh, that's, why, that's why I try to do it. When I mentor somebody, I mentor somebody that looks like me, I mentor somebody who don't look like me. Right. To debunk myths and also get the chance to learn me and make them a better person too as well. 
So that's all I have to say about this one. That's good stuff. Jeep sound like that. Like you had something to say. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, uh, of course. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> always, always do, right? Yeah. <laughs> always got something to say. Yeah. So let me say that I was raised right here in Appalachia, and I was raised on a creek bank as a small child in a mobile home. Uh, didn't have nothing, didn't know any better, you know. And um, but I was raised to live by the precepts of the Bible. My Bible taught me that there is no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no black, there's no white. We're all God's children, and we're to love one another. And so that's that's where I put my heart. And so um, I can't not love you, Luan. And so, and and Colonel Cochran's right. Like the the battle's won by having the conversation, uh, but by you telling me what I didn't know about the Rosa Parks story the other day, mm-hmm. by you know. By just listening to one another about, you know, have the conversation. And uh, my role in that, uh, beyond the outrage, because the outrage is emotion and it, it's temporary. <laughs> it's temporary. So if we're going to get to where we really want to go, it's got to come down where to where the white guy from Appalachia looks at his white friend and says, that's inappropriate. I'm calling you out. Yeah. And i got to say to the uncle at Thanksgiving, Mm-mm. right? And so um, – to me, that's 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 where my heart is, and um, it's got to be one on one, and uh, it's so much training is cognitive, and it needs to be more effective, because we have a lot of conversations of what about what airmen and soldiers do, and not enough about who we are, and that that's that's where Chief's heart is. Hallelujah. Sir Tolliver, something you want to add? Mm. Yeah, I had a, uh, a quite complex situation growing up. I uh, lived on the border of, of two schools. Um, my neighborhood was all black. I didn't, I didn't see any white kids growing up until I went to school, and then I was the only black kid in my school. Uh, so you would have to adapt a personality for who you are at school and who you are at home. At home, I felt like I could be myself, but at school, I felt like I had to put on a persona of who uh, who would be accepted at that school. Um, as far as my my uh, as far as my experiences in the military, we are a reflection of who we are as a country. If it's an issue in our country, it's probably going to be an issue in our military. You don't get your airman's coin, and and suddenly your ideas change about. Uh, social injustices or racial issues. Um, the beneficial thing about who we are as a Air National Guard unit or as the military, as the Air Force, is that we engage and we take initiative and our leadership is always uh, our leadership is always uh, willing to look out and make sure that we have these certain entities put in place so that we can be better um, to kind of break down those barriers that we may have. Uh, but, but that's, if, if that's, if that's who you are, that's who you are. So you got to take it upon yourself to either educate yourself or like chief said, you gotta, you gotta call out your brother. You gotta make it, you gotta make it personal. That's not us versus them. It's us together. And the only way that we can be together is we open up dialogue, we talk about it, and, uh, and, and we stomp it out. One conversation at a time. Go ahead, Sergeant Lee. All right. Sergeant Lee here, the, the only Army guy, actually. But um, I'll just say my experiences in the military, really, I've had no bad instances with anything, but I do have a lot of battle buddies with polar opposite views from myself outside of uniform and who may go along with a certain crowd or segment in society. And so what I've done is through my military career, which is eight years, by the way, I've kind of shot away from those people. Like at, at AT and whatnot, a quick example, I think it was 2013, it was my first AT, and the Trayvon Martin trial was going on. And the verdict came out when we were at AT that Mr. Zimmerman was innocent. And so at that moment, I had one battle buddy. I remember him looking me dead in the face saying, well, he got away with it, didn't he, buddy? 
you know, and I think that was his way of kind of reaching out to me. And I was like, yes, Sergeant, he did. And after that, I just kind of got up and walked outside because we were on downtime. It was like we'd already eaten chow and done our personal hygiene and all that. And I just kind of went to my went off into myself and just kind of walked around and thought about it. I really didn't reach out to any of my battle buddies for a conversation or anything. So I guess to bring it all home, maybe I'm guilty of not trying to start those conversations, but I'm also fearful of getting into debates with people that are really irrelevant to the end mission of the uniform, which is to combat enemies of the United States of America. I mean, at the end of the day, that's all we got to do together. So I have kind of shied away from those conversations. So maybe I should try, even in my own office, which, by the way, is one of the most diverse on posts, uh, three women and myself. So love all those women, and when we're diverse, maybe I can kind of start those conversations in there. So uh, I, I'd like to, uh, something that Sergeant Lee was just saying now, uh, some, sometimes we're going to have soldiers and airmen who don't think that they can address these issues because they're in an Air Force or Army environment. And uh, I want to say that uh, Ms. Christy Nolta, who's the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Reserve Affairs and Airman Readiness, uh, we had a conversation about this once, and, and she said, hey, environment is our responsibility as senior leaders. And so we as leaders have to create that environment where our airmen and soldiers feel comfortable to have these conversations and and." And share their experiences. But a lot of times they think, well, I'm, I'm in this Air Force environment. I can't talk about that. But, again, because we're also a family, we need to be able to talk about that. Just as General Walker, just Colonel Cochrane, just as General Walker saying that, I'm reminded, too, it's like, and I feel the same way, too. And I've often had conversations with some of, uh, you know, even as a former wing commander, so even as a former wing commander, you know, uh, maybe have some of the black officers come in and talk to me about, you know, you know, why I'm not taking a stronger stance on some issues and things like that. So I think in some respects, too, there is a little bit that goes along with, okay, when you put on the uniform, you do become apolitical, right? So we have a commander-in-chief, doesn't matter whether they're Republican or Democrat, it's the commander-in-chief, and that's who we're working for. Of course, we work for the governor as well. doesn't matter what political party and, and the such. So you, there's a fine line that a military uh, member has to walk to, and then you get all the, especially, it's a, election season right now so you guys are getting all the uh, stuff from our uh from our rotors reps and things like that but they're also reminding you hey you know about public demonstration and uh comments on social media and all the other stuff because you're not only representing yourself you're representing the uniform that you wear whether it be u.s army u.s air force too so that kind of puts a little bit of a restriction on sometimes open dialogue and it handcuffs members a little bit, even if it's just psychological, about, you know, what are some of the topics that I can sit around at work while I'm in uniform and talk about? And we always say, hey, can we keep your politics out of, uh, you know, out of what we're doing? Because that can call, you know, there's a lot of people with some really strong political views, and they can get a little bit heated. So we tend to keep that out of the workplace, and it's almost mandated for, for that. And you talk about some of the issues that we're talking about here. Man, they're politically charged, you know? So even before we came into our uh, forum for the podcast, too, I sat with General Walker, and I was like, well, you know, even as a former wing commander, you know, we have to make sure that, uh, that when we're having a podcast, too, that, that we don't cross a line that gets ahead of our leadership, you know, that gets, ahead, you know, commander-in-chief, he, he's got some directors out there, I'm sure, our, uh, our governor, as well as the TAG, too. So you kind of, you think about that coming into it, even as a senior leader, because that's a part of our responsibility is to be apolitical, support and defend the Constitution of the United States of West Virginia, and to do that without any biases, you know. Unfortunately, you can't take yourself and your personal beliefs uh, and, and check them at the door just because you put on the uniform. And that's kind of why we're here having a podcast, too, because your cultural experience, your ethnic background, I mean, everything that defines your life defines your views, and it's not only uh, the core values of the U.S. Army or the U.S. Air Force that kind of we're expected to uphold. There are some personal values that you develop throughout your life based on your circumstance, and it's hard to shed those. So that's why we definitely need to have the dialogue. So that's my comment on that, but thanks, Sergeant Lee. And, and I, also one other thing. Uh, you notice the word that Sergeant Lee used before. He used debate. And see, that is a problem, because mm -hmm. uh, if, if we're going to, if 
if all of our conversations turn to debate, it's, it's not going to get anywhere. It has to be, like Colonel Cochran said, a dialogue, okay? Because um, we've all, I know many of us have spent a lot of time in our careers uh, when we, we're not truly listening, right? Uh, 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 we're, we're listening to respond and not to understand, right? Uh, we've all been there. Many of us have spent a lot of time uh, just being sometimes intellectually lazy, right? And we hear a few words and we stereotype the speaker, and then we make an assumption about the rest. And that means all we got from that engagement is the echo chamber of what we already thought. And there's no learning, there's no progress, and there's no evolution. So that's why we, we have to actually, the dialogue means dialogue. We have to sit down and listen to each other. And, and once we start that understanding, you'll be amazed at what could happen after that. I think on top of um, listening to one another, yeah, I go back to um, some of the, when you do a one-on-one sometimes with someone, especially when it's something that has like really gripped you, it can be painful to relive that, to relive that trauma. So I think what's very important too is along with, talking to them, if they don't want to talk to you about that, you should show grace in my view. And Google is a powerful tool. You know, there have been a lot of people who've wrote about these issues that a lot of reputable PhD scholarly works about these issues that you can do or that you can read to understand better as well. I mean, it's good to, to talk to someone like one-on-one if they're willing to, but like I said, it's, you also have to have that grace to show that like, you know, if I'm talking to them, this might be painful for them to relive that. So, you know, I might ask the question first. And if I feel like that it's, if they're being traumatized by it, I think that's what shows a brotherly love is to say, you know, something I'll, I'll figure it out. You know, I'll look at, I'll, you know, I'll read different books and things like that. Um, does anybody else have anything? All right, so next question is, what is your outlook on the future of the military as far as, um, as, far as race? Like me personally, I think that the military is way ahead of its time when you look at the um, American populace. I mean... We were among the first to desegregate, you know, even before schools and, you know, things like that. I, it was almost like as the military desegregated, churches segregated more. So I feel like that the military is probably one of the most progressive um, institutions in terms of um, promoting equality in America. So what is your, um, your um, outlook as far as I'm concerned, the outlook is bright because there's more and more diversity happening within the military. And, and not only just from people who grew up here in the United States, we're having more and more people uh, join our military coming in from other countries. As a matter of fact, in the West Virginia National Guard, we, we, we have folks who grew up in all sorts of different countries. Uh, and, uh, and that is going to add more more flavor to our stew, good flavor. And what the, the advantage we have now is the young people coming up are a, a lot different from when we grew up. They are a lot, they, they have YouTube, they have Google, they, 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 they are able to see a lot of things and learn a lot of things that we weren't able to, to learn unless we traveled the, the United States and traveled the world. They're able to see all that now on their phones, and they're interacting with each other a, a lot more, a, a lot more lovingly. <laughs> and, and matter of fact, uh, I talked with uh, Command Sergeant Major uh, Philip Cantrell earlier today because he couldn't make this this call. But he, he, a good thing that he brought up was, hey, we should go to any kindergarten class now, kindergarten or or elementary school and watch how those kids interact 
and look at them. No, there's nothing but love and friendliness, and you know, there's going to be little fights here and there, but just like brothers and sisters do. But again, they are our future, and th- their attitudes are going to be brought into our military, and, and so that's where I see the future. Yeah, so I agree with everything General Walker Center too. And then if you take it to the next level, so um, as far as the future of the military with race, so even out of all the stuff that's going on right now, uh, you've heard from uh, DOD Secretary Esper, right? You heard from your Secretary of the Air Force. I'm sure Secretary of the Army uh, has put out something. Uh, our Chief of Staff, uh, our incumbent Chief of Staff, first African American. That's kind of been affirmed uh, as of yesterday, right, sir? Or uh, last week, actually. Last week, yeah. So, uh, with the Senate hearings, uh, General Brown and uh, General Goldfing and uh, Chief Wright. So we've heard from our senior, our most senior leaders in the uh, Department of Defense and the military. And what are they talking about? They're talking about the same things that we're talking about, right? And they're talking about, okay, almost like what Chief uh, Williams talked just spoke about, too. Hey, you can be outraged, but you can only be outraged for a minute, and then you got to really do something about it. So what are you going to do about it? And if you look back at even the history of our United States, really where you, where you get your, your change is out of, uh, you know, policy, legislation, right? So DOD policy, right now DOD has three initiatives that are going on. And the initiatives are, hey, he's going to have an advisory committee on diversity and, and uh, inclusion. He's going to put together another board on, uh, on race, almost like what we did with women in the military years ago too. And, uh, you know, we finally got women into uh, fighter cockpits, uh, combat and all that. So that there's a board that's being uh, that board will be developed by the first of the year. Uh, the advisory committee has to uh, get some input by the end of the year, and then also right now the third initiative right is like, hey, do something right now. So he's inviting all senior leaders to give him, hey, what can we do right now to kind of make uh, race relations uh, uh, equality within our military uh, more transparent and happen quickly, quickly. And uh, one of those initiatives right now that uh, they're talking about, and I don't know if it's happening or not, maybe General Walker can speak to it, when we do promotion boards, what do we always have? We have a photograph. What's the purpose of the photograph? You know, obviously you want to check your ribbon stack against your, your rep and all that. But, you know, I, there's a bias. There's an unconscious bias that can happen by just having a photo be the first thing that you uh, look at when you, uh, when you start your board. You know, yeah, you're looking at the ribbons and how the member wears the uniform and how, you know, how fit or not fit they may be and all that kind of stuff, too. But it's a personal perception. But you're also looking at the individual, male, female, you know, whatever you may gather from that picture. So pictures are going to be out. So that's an initiative that's coming down for promotion boards. So uh, when we think about the future of race in the military, you got to think about that piece of it, too. Not just what you're doing uh, at the at the ground level in your shop or within your section or your flight or your squadron or your battalion. You know, you know, what are your senior leaders really doing, too? So it's happening from both levels. Kind of what General Walker's talking about from the recruiting of the kindergartners, which is an awesome concept, right? Get them ready. But, uh, but also from the top down, too. So I think, uh, my opinion, the military future is always going to be bright just because of the history that we have, too. You mentioned about the, uh, the integration early on. So I think in that respect, sometimes the military does kind of lead uh, from the front. But there's work to be done, but the future is bright. Major Harrison. I agree with uh, General Walker and Colonel Cochran. I think the future is bright. I mean, you see it every day. Um, I see I just joined the 167th wing, uh, I think, in November. Um, and like I said, there's not that many minorities there, but, you know, they they all embrace it. You know, I said, I never felt odd or awkward. But I'm telling you, I think the future is bright. Even my former wing in Mississippi, the young kids are coming in. They're te- technical savvy. They're welcoming. They don't... Uh, Shun you, and they want to learn, you know. So I think, I think, when I retire, I think this military is going to be awesome, you know. So I, I see a, a very bright future. Uh, I say, you know, of course we're going to have, you know, the ones and ones and twos. The policy change is going to make a difference. What's going on right now? So like I say, it's very encouraging, and I'm, I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling very uplifted about it. I, I agree. I, I think it's very bright. And I think generally speaking, when you look at teams in general, when you get a group of people together on a team and they have purpose and they have a goal, um, we all of a sudden forget about what we look like. We, we look at the, the eyes on the prize, right? Yeah. 
And uh, so we know our mission, and the majority of the time when, when I'm around a, a leadership discussion, everything surrounds the mission. Mm-hmm. And, and it doesn't matter what you look like. It matters what skills, skill sets you bring to the table. Yep. Like, what do you bring to the fight? Um, I, I watched the, um, yeah, some sort of NBA special the other day, and it was on the 96 Dream Team. And uh, the team was amazed that Larry Bird, might be the whitest guy ever walked the planet, <laughs> became best buddies with Charles Barkley, outspoken uh, black man from the Deep South. And all the teammates are like, really? You two guys? But you know what? They're teammates. Mm-hmm. They're teammates, and the goal was the gold. And and uh, I just think that's a great analogy for us. Like, we have a mission, and, and we just – we're in this together. We care about one another, and we're going to be successful. Right. Sergeant Tolliver. I've been in 14 years, and I've never uh, been trained to run away from a situation. Um, the reason why our future is so bright is because our military culture, we are, we are trained to uh, pinpoint our issues and then wage war against that issue and, and defeat it. Um, and that's what we're doing now, and that's what uh, the Air National Guard has uh, continued to uh, take their stance on. A lot of times also, and uh, I've been through two deployments, I've, I've been in situations where I didn't have time to, to ask you, what your ethnicity was, or to look at your face to see uh, whose side you were on. I saw this uniform. We had to stand in there together. We had tough moments. We had to talk about them together. We had to get through those tough moments together. Some of my best brothers and sisters that I that I keep in touch with to this day came from those situations. So the future's bright, and um, we got to just continue to keep pushing and, and doing the right thing that uh, that we're doing now. Sergeant Lee. Well, add another one to the future's bright column because uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, I, and I think I'm going to take it from a different angle. I think it's, it's bright because our nation is becoming more diverse. The next generation is becoming more diverse. Um, I don't have the census numbers in front of me, but I think we're in our lifetime, my lifetime being a 41-year-old, I'll see a country that is about 50% minority or close to combined. It's about 2050. It's supposed to be about 2050. No majority. By the time I'm an old man, because see, by that point, I'll be <laughs> Anyway, I'll be on up here, sir. But, yeah. but I think the future is definitely bright because we've got young diversity coming into our military. I'll just say, I can't say enough about this new generation of people that are coming up, just how smart they are, how innovative they are. Um, I really believe that they, just because of, you know, the fact that they were born and raised in the computer age, just that itself just shows how ready they are to take the mantle and to take the lead. And I really believe that they are the smartest generation. And I believe that it's just going to get smarter and better. And um, I think we're, we're leaving them, or we're leaving there are good hands that are taking the mantle up for us, you know, when we try decide to take off this uniform. So um, we've reached the end of our podcast. Um, so one thing I do want to go around and see if anybody else has anything that they want to say, any alibis. Well, I, I want us also to remember that this, this uh, I want to emphasize this, that, that this conversation isn't just about black and white. We have all sorts of cultures, religions, sexual orientation, and such within the West Virginia National Guard. And, and so if we want to, again, we have to engage in conversations with each other and be open to one another. And I uh, want to let everybody know about a resource here in West Virginia. It's the West Virginia Herbert Henderson Office of Minority Affairs. But I... Uh, could find out a lot about just within West Virginia, uh, the the rich history of all minorities in West Virginia through that office. It's run by uh, Jill Upson. But again, also uh, I encourage people to read different novels from from folks from different countries or different backgrounds, not just the black novels like James Baldwin, Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston. But let's uh, let's look at uh, folks like Amy Tan for uh, to get a, a a picture into 
Chinese culture or Chiang Rai Li in, uh, looking into Korean culture or uh, Porchista Kakpur looking into Persian, Iranian culture and such. Because I'm telling you, go to any around the West Virginia, some of our neighborhoods, my neighbors, I have neighbors from Nigeria, from uh, Pakistan, uh, from China, everywhere, and I'm, uh, and I'm learning from them. But, uh, but what reading some of these novels will do is sometimes give you questions in your head, and then you'll go and dig into textbooks. But nobody, except maybe a, a few poindexters, just reads a textbook for fun. You know, reading these novels will, will personalize it, and then you'll be tending to want to learn more on your own by doing your research. Uh, just to the to the general's point, um, uh, there's there's I feel like there's strength and some power that comes from recognizing differences in one another and what we bring, and it can also be dangerous when we fail to appreciate those differences. And I, it reminds me of a story about uh, that I read history story uh, about a, a young officer. He was in the army. He was a quartermaster, which I think equates to a supply. LRS officer and Air Force folk, and uh, he got, he got lost in the Mexican desert, and uh, he was kind of sloppy and short and fat in his uniform, and uh, he kind of survived off the land and somehow found his way back to the base without dying, and and uh, he looked terrible when he got back, and the commanding officer saw him when he returned, and uh, bawled him out, told him he looked like a slob, and he was good for nothing, short, fat, he was just a lowly supply guy. Uh, well, that lowly supply guy was Ulysses S. Grant, and that officer that uh, that bought him out was Lee. Uh, fast forward in history, Lee's in Richmond, and the short, fat supply officer said, I'll show you what a quartermaster can do. And he didn't attack him mano on mano like everyone thought he did. He surrounded Richmond and said, nothing's coming in, and nothing's going out. Logistics wins wars. I'm right. different. Right. I'm different. You didn't appreciate me for what I bring to the fight. Mm -hmm. So now deal with it. Yeah. And Richmond imploded. And so when we recognize differences, whatever they are, mm -hmm. whether they be race or socioeconomic backgrounds, male, female, you name it, and, and appreciate people for what they bring to us, uh, we, we're strong. Amen. Anybody else have anything to say? Yeah, I got something to say. I just say, hey, that we just learn how to continue to embrace one another. You know, we're going to have differences, but embrace with differences. As long as we're not discriminatory or hurtful to one another. You know, sometimes we're not going to agree on a lot of stuff, but um, but we're all human, no matter what. I don't see no animals walking around there trying to read instructions. It's these are human beings walking around here. So we embrace each other as we look at our own family members. As a matter of fact, we spend more time amongst each other in our own family. So it should be like common sense that we should be able to um, embrace one another and uh, take care of one another. Like, like we do when we go to war. I think when we go to war, when we deploy, we never looking at color skin or look at somebody. We just want to make sure that they're able to do the job and do the mission and that we all come back home safely. So so that's my secret uh, to that. But yes, uh, and also, not only that, go to different, you don't want to read, go to museums. Um, museums have great, uh, great information, or just go online. Like you said earlier, Google. You know, it's a, it's a lot of resources about learning different, different nationalities, origins. So we just got to take the time out to learn one another, or at least take the time out, go to lunch, yeah. or go to my office, just to have a conversation with them. Right. So that's a lot, so. Colonel Cochran, again, I'll just piggyback on that, too. Just final comments. So uh, we're having a podcast here. I'm not sure how many folks are going to listen to this podcast. You know, it's going to be a few, but it's not going to be everybody. So the, I think the goal would be and the intent, too, is just to kind of carry the dialogue uh, that's that's kind of being started here. I know you have future podcasts planned as well. Yes, and, uh, you know, with the theme of kind of diversity and uh, inclusion. And uh, obviously we, we do a lot of stuff, and sometimes it seems to get a little bit tiring uh, for airmen and soldiers. Sometimes we call it training. But there's a lot of good resources out there, even within your organizations. If you think about your human resource advisors, if you think about your equal opportunity uh, sections, and uh, and I'm sure there's going to be literature that's going to be coming down because this is, uh, you know, we're not the only ones talking. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, manpower that's being put into developing, uh, not necessarily um, training modules or anything like that, but just literature 
so even coming out of uh, West Virginia National Guard uh, or NGB headquarters in EO, uh, they have uh, a wealth of resources that are going to be uh, posted on their uh, their SharePoints and things like that. So even if you're a supervisor, if you're you know you can recommend some of that for the, for the folks in your shop. But I would say just keep the dialogue going and don't be afraid to have those conversations. And almost like uh, I don't know if it came out of the DPH's shop, uh, but just uh, an encouragement to hey you know seek out somebody else that you uh, don't normally talk to. Uh, in the next few months and just kind of get to know some of the other folks that you're working with that maybe uh, you haven't made time to do uh, just yet. This could be a good opportunity to start those conversations with someone that you maybe haven't had a conversation with. Right. Well, I'd just like to close by saying thank you all for inviting me. Um, I feel confident in speaking on behalf of the Army side and saying thank you for lending us a voice within this podcast and if there are any more future podcasts I'd definitely reach out to the other side too I'm sure there's some folks over there who would like to participate but definitely thank you for having me I want to thank each of you for taking the time out of your busy schedules to have this important discussion and this is going to do it for this episode of the Beeline for more information about the West Virginia National Guard visit us on the web at www.wv.ng.mil additionally you can find us on all major social media platforms This is Mass Sergeant Dewan Haley reminding you to stay safe and West Virginia strong.